Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Welcome back. No, I did not forget about you, I swear, or this pod for that matter. It's just that September was monumentally busy. I don't know about you, but I found myself slammed. And on top of that, it was really interesting because I love talking to so many people for my podcast, Watch with Jen and Friends. But you kind of have to go with people's schedules, of course. I just am so thrilled that they will deign to speak with me on my humble little pod that, of course, I'm going to meet them whatever time they would like, whatever medium. And schedule-wise, it was really interesting because like in July to August, there was kind of a drought where a lot of people were busy. They kept saying, you know, fall is better. So I kept pushing, thought, well, I'll just record when I get to it. And then in September, it was like when it rains, it pours. Everybody found their schedule suddenly opening up. So I've been recording several episodes a week. One week in particular, it was insane. I think I talked to six people on top of writing every week for my website and also the Phoenix Film Festival website, which is my second outlet, and turning in a massive piece on Willem Dafoe to DVD Netflix, and writing another massive piece on Hitchcock in 4K, his new four films in 4K, gorgeous box set, by the way, do pick it up. I worked in all of these interviews, so I didn't really have time to put this podcast out. But one thing I love so much about Watch With Jen and Friends is that in it, each person has very different tastes. So we are appealing to all different types of listeners with different interests. And hopefully you discovered some new movies to check out whether that was in like Kristen Lopez's fun crush episode or talking with Jordan Harper about crime movies or Nikki Dolson on heist films or the many just talented film critics and writers and Tony nominees that we've talked to this month. So I hope you found some inspiration there to kind of tide you over I think what I'm going to have to do with this podcast is just upload when I'm able, because this is the one that takes the longest amount of time as far as doing the research. And I'm a perfectionist, of course, so I'm going to do like way more research than I actually need or wind up using. Sometimes I like to rewatch the movies again. So this podcast is just going to come out when I feel the inspiration and when I have more movies to recommend to you. And in between those episodes, of course, I would love it if you listen to the Watch With Jen and Friends podcast. And also, you can always check out the website to see what I'm writing and visit me on social media. By the way, I really didn't think I was going to do this because I've been kind of pissed at HBO Max for launching this incredible service and giving people very little access to it in the long run. HBO Go kind of vanished. I don't know if HBO Now did it as well. So the only way people can access it pretty much is on their Apple TV device. And for Android, that would be just your tablets. It is still not available on Roku or Amazon Fire. So I hesitated because every month I'm looking at HBO Max and I'm having to cast it to my television because with my service provider of AT&T, I only pay like five bucks a month for it. So of course I'm keeping it. I'm just casting it to my TV constantly. And I know how annoying that is. It's not a perfect system. But looking over the catalog of available titles, I found myself so inspired to recommend some to you. A few of these are going to be probably well-known. Maybe you haven't seen them 
in years, or maybe you always meant to check them out. A couple of these are classics, and a few contemporary classics as well, or just movies that have caught on. But I wanted to give you a nice overview of everything that HBO Max has to offer. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. The first film that I'd love to talk to you about is City of God, which came out in 2002. It was directed by Fernando Morelis and Katia Lund. A lot of people forget about Katia Lund's contribution because Fernando Morelis is so synonymous with the movie, but she was the co-director, even if she didn't receive the Academy Award nomination for herself for Best Director. Like, they didn't share it. The Academy just nominated Fernando Morelli's because I think he was the main director. I have a bone to pick with the Academy for a few reasons. That would be one of them. But also because this movie, which, as Roger Ebert pointed out, is one of the greatest movies you will ever see, was nominated for four Oscars, including cinematography, director screenplay, and editing. But crazily enough, it was not one of the five finalists in the best foreign film category. Which is bananas, I know. Best foreign film is usually my favorite category because you're looking at movies from all over the globe. The best of the best. Although sometimes, let's face it, politics comes into play and the wrong movie gets nominated that kind of thing. And it definitely happens. This was Brazil's official selection. It did make it through some rounds, but didn't wind up getting the nomination. Still, this film has lived on. It was based on the 1997 novel by Paulo Lins, which was loosely based on real events. And the screenplay was written by, forgive me if I'm butchering this, Brolio Matovani. The film, which is in Portuguese, focuses on the growth of organized crime in the Cidade de Deus suburb of Rio de Janeiro between the end of the 1960s up through the beginning of the 1980s. It opens boldly in media res, which means in the middle of the plot. There is an armed gang chasing a chicken in the favela or the neighborhood, the chicken stops between the gang and our narrator, a young man named Rocket. Then the film jumps back in time to the 1960s, where we meet the tender trio, who are three impoverished young amateur crooks in the newly built housing projects of the City of God neighborhood. They rob business owners and, kind of like Robin Hood, share the money with the community, who in turn hides them and keeps their mouths shut. All is great for a little while, but then violence occurs in one robbery. And by the 1970s, all hell is broken loose, and there is widespread violence that keeps escalating over the course of the film. Rocket, our narrator, is, by and large, away from the violence. He is a peaceful kid. He likes photography. He develops a crush on a beautiful girl, but she's involved with a local drug dealer who's actually a really mellow guy. I mean, for the criminal characters, let's just say. And one thing that I love about this movie is it kind of is a novel on film. Not only is it based on a novel, but they kind of took that when they adapted it to the screen it catches up with characters that we might have seen in the periphery in an earlier scene. They come back into play later. This is used to the best effect in the film's most just heart-rending sequence involving a character named Knockout Ned, who is a boxer, becomes a bus driver, and again is trying to stay out of the life until... It winds up at his door in the worst way. It's a film about how violence begets violence. And in its fresh style, the way that it zooms in, it kind of has this sense of discovery, even if it's using sort of like French New Wave techniques or neorealist techniques. 
It involved mostly amateur actors who were put through like an acting school sort of before they found themselves in front of a camera. There was a test short that Katia Lund and Fernando Morelli's made just to make sure that their experiment here would actually work before the film shot even like one frame of film. And going back to the way that it opens, where we're just in the middle of a situation, like this is what's going on. We're chasing a chicken. We don't know why. It's something that I think we've moved away from in filmmaking. And it's a valuable technique that I want screenwriters and aspiring screenwriters to pay attention to when they watch City of God. There is something to be said, and we're going to go into this in another film that I'm talking about this week, for just introducing your characters in the middle of an action. We catch up with them and figure out who they are on the fly. And this movie is a great example of that. We don't need the, you know, slow call to action, like, This is them going about their daily life, like taking out the garbage, that kind of thing. It seems that that is a technique that's used to death, especially in like miniseries and prestige TV. Like we see them in their dull, dreary little worlds, which is important. Don't get me wrong, because it is a nice contrast. But sometimes it goes on for far too long. So when you watch something like that's very kinetic and in your face and innovative like this, it immediately grabs your attention. And I think it will do the same whether you've seen this film five times or it's your first time checking it out. So be sure to queue up City of God. Since after City of God, you're definitely going to need a comedy. What better than one of my favorite crime comedies of all time, which is My Blue Heaven. And it came out in 1990. It was directed by Herbert Ross. Herbert Ross is an innovator behind the camera, especially with comedic work. He helmed Play It Against Sam, The Last of Sheila, which technically isn't a comedy, although it is a damn funny mystery. And one of my favorites, it also largely inspired Knives Out. So if you're a big fan of Knives Out, look up the last of Sheila. Herbert Ross made one of the great romantic comedies of all time with The Goodbye Girl, which was based on the Neil Simon play with Richard Reifus and Marsha Mason. He also directed a little movie called Footloose, which was huge in my generation growing up. Also Steel Magnolias and Boys on the Side. But when it came to My Blue Heaven, he is a great fit here. He's working from a screenplay by Nora Ephron, who is one of my favorite screenwriters. She and I share a birthday, and When Harry Met Sally was actually the first screenplay that I ever owned. I received it for Christmas and studied it, and even though it isn't written in what we to this day would consider like true screenplay format, kind of, if I remember right, seems like a play a little bit. It's sort of a script, but it uses play formatting, but it also then uses the scene headers. Like, it's... I don't know that it would fly if it was written today and was just getting submitted, but as far as a screenplay goes, the content is just amazing. And that movie is still just incredibly funny, nuanced, and true, and it's full of conversations like you have with your friends, regardless of the fact that it came out over 30 years ago. My Blue Heaven is turning 30 this year. It's, again, from 1990. It was actually released one month before Goodfellas. And why that's important is both movies were inspired by the life of Henry Hill, the criminal at the heart of Goodfellas, who is played by Ray Liotta. I spoke with Glenn Kenny recently for the podcast. He wrote the book, literally, on Goodfellas and the making of the film. And when I was talking to him and concurrently reading the book at the same time and really enjoying the hell out of it, seeing him talk about My Blue Heaven and the fact that they share the same 
source material. It just made me think that, yes, this is the right time to bring this movie front and center. Goodfellas just had its 30th anniversary last weekend, so it seems fitting. Nora Ephron was married to Nicholas Pileggi. Nicholas Pileggi wrote the book Wise Guy, which became Goodfellas, and he did firsthand interview research with Henry Hill. Interestingly, Nora had this thing where she would answer the phone when Henry would call, and Henry, if I remember correctly, would even joke like he was bombed and would call and just wanted to talk to Nick. And sometimes she would be like, oh, he's sleeping or he's not here. And then she would talk and ask him a bunch of questions. He had no idea she was even writing this movie. And later, because he didn't get any money for it or didn't know about it, he was pretty ticked off and made some joke that made me think like she could have been in some serious jeopardy because he said if she was anybody else's wife and you're just thinking yeah that's a guy she ticked off but hey Nora Ephron is one ballsy babe this was her second crime film after Cookie which was directed by Susan Seidelman and came out just one year earlier in 1989 Cookie is kind of a mess, although it's entertaining and should be watched, I think. But its failures make you appreciate My Blue Heaven that much more. This is the third film with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis following Little Shop of Horrors and Parenthood. Moranis would also be in Steve's L.A. story, which was made a year later. The film is about... Vincent Vinny Antonelli, who's the Henry Hill stand-in, who's a former mobster in WITSEC, or Witness Protection, I should say. And he arrives in San Diego with his wife, Linda, to start their new life as Todd and Terry. And Barney Coopersmith, who is Rick Moranis, is his FBI handler, both... Moranis's wife and Steve Martin's wife leave them in the first act of the movie. And this fosters an interesting relationship between the two men where they become friends. And Vincent gets Barney to break out of his shell a little bit, which gets really funny when he meets Hannah Stubbs, the incomparable Joan Cusack as the district attorney who tries to prosecute Vinny for a variety of crimes. He's always talking his way out of it. He's incredibly charming. And the scenes with the two of them, and then later when Rick Moranis meets Hannah Stubbs for the first time, are just side-splittingly funny. Originally, Steve Martin was supposed to play Barney Cooper Smith. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, believe it or not, was going to play Vincent Antonelli. But he left the production for Kindergarten Cop when he got that movie, which I think is all for the better. Kindergarten Cop is a blast and Arnold is great in it. And I just can't see him. Maybe it's because I'm part Italian and I'm like, oh, I don't know if Arnold can do a full-on Italian accent to the level I would want him to do. Or just the New York wise guy accent, I should say. But I can't see it, and I am just thrilled that Vinny was played by Steve Martin. He offered to switch roles from Barney Cooper Smith and become Vinny because Rick Moranis was suddenly available, and the filmmakers had actually looked into Rick Moranis originally for Barney, but he wasn't able to shoot the film at the time. So it was kind of a nice scheduling snafu that happened. And they switched parts, which I think is really good for Steve Martin, because especially following like Parenthood and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and a few of those movies, you sort of see uptight Steve Martin. And every once in a while, it's nice to see like Screwball Steve or just way over the top, but in the greatest of ways, Steve Martin. And this movie is the epitome of that. Critics at the time were mixed on it. 
There were some scathing reactions to the film, but I think it's grown in its esteem over the years as people have discovered it. It was the first Nora Ephron movie I ever saw as a kid. I remember renting it as a new release with my parents. I think I watched it probably like twice when we had it out from the video store and always returned to it over the years. It's still one I love to watch, especially around the holidays. I don't know what it is. This year I did that on New Year's. I watched My Blue Heaven, and it was so much fun. So I'm a little early with this whole it's not quite the holidays thing, but I'm like two months too late on its 30th anniversary, so we're splitting the difference there. So if you're in the mood for a laugh, do check out My Blue Heaven on HBO Max. When I was in college, I started to discover that I was really interested in studying especially sex and gender on film. It was a fascination of mine. I especially enjoy dissecting masculinity and the roles that men play on screen, which I think reflect the roles that they play in life. Let's face it, men are predominantly the characters on film. And my thesis wound up being on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, where I kind of did that, which is a fascinating introduction to sex and gender, and especially masculinity. And I kind of continued on. I studied female filmmakers and did my due diligence there, and I love it. It's one of my specialties as well. I still enjoy covering as many films by women as I possibly can. But there was just something about men as a muse that amused me. And one of the papers that I wrote in film school that's actually on my website, God, it must be really old and like, please be kind if you find it. But just like there are variations of some of the essays. I don't think I put my full thesis for Sex Lies on there, but there is like a version of it on there. So these are old papers and my writing style has changed and these are extremely academic and extremely nerdy. So you do not need to feel obligated to check them out. But one paper that I always loved writing and it was one of my favorites was on McCarthyism, masculinity, and the 1950s Western. Specifically, I took a look at three movies that are kind of about the same thing, or two films that were made in response to the first. The first was High Noon, followed that up with Alan Juan's Silver Load, which Martin Scorsese introduced me to in his Journey Through American Movies documentary that I can't recommend highly enough. After Silver Load, which was even more liberal, or I should say probably just as liberal, just more liberal in a few different ways, interesting ways, than High Noon was the third film, Rio Bravo by Howard Hawks, which was made in 1958, released in 59, so I'm going to call it a 1959 film. Rio Bravo was made distinctly as a response to High Noon, specifically how much Howard Hawks and John Wayne hated High Noon. According to Hawks, he didn't think a sheriff should go around running like a chicken with his head cut off, asking for help. He thought it was unmasculine and un-American and just un-alpha and just un-everything that Howard Hawks stood for, as did, of course, Duke Wayne. And they made Rio Bravo. And let's face it, all three of these movies are great. I enjoy the hell out of High Noon. It's a classic. It's also, though, kind of bleak and dreary. I mean, by design, of course. And it's grainy. It kind of plays like a grainy documentary, almost, black and white. And then Alan Dwan's Silver Load is a B-picture, and it's bright, and it's cheerful, but it isn't as bright or as cheerful as Rio Bravo, which is an all-out hangout movie. It's a conservative film with conservative ideas. In that sense, it reminds me of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a great film by Quentin Tarantino. I have some issues with it. We won't get into that. It like takes too long. Stuff I loved about it, like really loved, stuff I wasn't a fan of. You know, it's all over the map. But it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a good hangout movie. 
just like Rio Bravo is, but you can't deny the conservative ideas floating through it about masculinity and white men in particular. And that's part of its appeal and part of its detraction. But Rio Bravo, going back to the 50s now, is the film out of all three of these that I would watch the most. Like, if you put all three of these movies in front of me and said pick a Western, nine times out of ten, I'm going to choose Rio Bravo. It is a blast. It was written by Jules Ferdman and Lee Brackett. Lee Brackett, of course, wrote The Big Sleep. She was credited on, I think it was Empire Strikes Back. She also wrote The Long Goodbye. She's a great screenwriter. And it was based on a short story, also entitled Rio Bravo, by B.H. McCampbell. In the late 90s, a bio came out on Hawks, and it said that actually B.H. McCampbell is Howard Hawks' daughter, Barbara. So B.H., Barbara Hawks, McCampbell, was her married name at the time. She may have come up with the story for this. The film centers on a sheriff of Rio Bravo, Texas, who arrests the brother of a powerful local rancher for murder and must hold him in jail until the arrival of a U.S. marshal. Meanwhile, of course, the rancher's gang wants to go to war and get him out of the jail. Par for the course for John Wayne movies. And now, now that I say this, go back and think about your favorite John Wayne movie. And you'll see what I mean. John Wayne, part of his persona and why he seemed so masculine and so just like the ideal is they would partner him with people who weren't of his physical equal. Like it would be a young kid or an old guy past retirement, or somebody with like war wounds or disability. Well, Rio Bravo, it's like, hell, why not all three? So in this one, he has the help of a disabled elderly man played by Walter Brennan, who God, I love in this movie as Stumpy, a drunk dude played by Dean Martin. Interestingly enough, dude the origins of the term were for effeminate man or a man that was known as kind of a dandy was known as a dude. So I'm not quite sure if Hawks and Brackett or Dean Martin or Wayne or all of the above would have probably called him dude. Like had they really studied the origins of the word, but anyway, it's fun. He's a drunk guy. He's recovering it's Dean Martin, and he steals the movie away from John Wayne in this. So, okay, we have a disabled guy, we have a drunk, and we're adding a young gun- gunfighter, played by Ricky Nelson. John Wayne's movies often have this young guy who's taken under his wing, kind of like Monty Clift was in Red River, which is one of my favorite John Wayne movies. And then, of course, because you need one, especially in a Howard Hawks movie, there is a brassy, bold, talks a mile a minute female. It's a showgirl. Hawks movies are always full of just beautiful, ballsy women who can hang with the men. And that's Angie Dickinson as Feathers. In Hawks's eyes, the woman has to do most of the talking because otherwise it's a damn boring picture. And so Angie Dickinson has some great comedic dialogue that kind of goes to Hawks's favorite thing, which is three cushion dialogue, which when I say three cushion, he meant billiards where balls would go around the point or around where it needed to go like ricochet. He thought it was more interesting to talk around the thing than it was to just directly address whatever the thing was that is being addressed, whether it's a declaration of love or a, hey, these people are trying to come to your jail and, you know, shoot everyone. And that's feathers in this. But interestingly enough, part of Rio Bravo's brilliance was the fact that it opens with absolutely no dialogue for the first I want to say five full minutes. And that is completely by design. Again, according to Hawks, you know who the men are. 
and that's all you need to know. You discover them in action, just as I was talking about with City of God, how it opens in the middle of an action or the middle of a scene or the middle of the story. Here, you're introduced to the men and you need to know who they are based only on what you see here. And it is a great scene. Yes, I will admit that, okay, some of the music and the sound effects, it's a little over the top for today's standards. Like, you're going to watch it. If you've never seen it before, it might be like, okay, this is a little cheesy. But just go with it, because it is one hell of a prologue. He took this idea, Hawks did, from television, which opens with what they call like a teaser, Usually there's a teaser on a sitcom back in the day. It was like a teaser, two acts and a tag. The teaser is sort of the prologue. So this is the prologue to Rio Bravo. Hawks has said he considers the movie to be kind of like three TV shows in one. And it is a long movie. It's a long one. It's a little unwieldy, but it's so much fun. And when I say conservative, of course, there's the idea of John Wayne who presents this front of like, I don't need help. I mean, he's got some help there, but because it's John Wayne, this help is hindered in some way or a few different ways. He shows no fear. He shows no need to ask others the way that Gary Cooper did in High Noon. Also, of course, Feathers, who's a great showgirl character by Angie Dickinson, is terrific. But because we're talking about the 50s here and the roles of women and men, she spends like most of the movie trying to seduce John Wayne. And she wears these skimpy costumes. They're great costumes, by the way. And she's funny and sexy and charming. And she plays poker, I think, in one of the first scenes we see her in. Just a memorable, memorable character. And then, of course, to get John Wayne at the end, it's like, okay, I'm going to use my feminine wiles to get him. But really, all I want is to, you know, put on the house dress and stay at home and have a bunch of kids and be like, barefoot and pregnant, like basically get me and then I will fulfill the 50s wife of the man in the gray flannel suit sort of gender role, which is a little unfortunate. But, you know, you take all this aside, don't really look into maybe what Hawks is trying to say with certain ideas that he interjects throughout these movies, especially in Rio Bravo, or certain ideas perhaps that maybe Quentin Tarantino is putting out there in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But we won't go into that because, again, these are just fun movies. I mean, there are also great conversations to be had with the right people in your life. But part of the fun of movies is watching films that challenge your ideas and seeing how they inspire thought. I mean, look, right here, we had a movie that was challenged by High Noon and inspired by High Noon. They saw the film, it challenged their thought, and caused them to come up with a movie in response. And that is Rio Bravo, which was shot at the old Tucson studios right here in Arizona, where the buildings were actually shorter than the men, so they looked larger than life, which is another nice little Howard Hawks trick. Okay, here's the thing. In the late 1960s, if you want to get your movie on ABC, as in like a TV movie of the week, you better make sure that a subject in your film doesn't mimic having sex with an amplifier. Well, D.A. Pennybaker learned the hard way. A documentary filmmaker whose most famous work was Don't Look Back, the controversial, contentious, iconic documentary about Bob Dylan, and nobody finds it more contentious than Bob Dylan. D.A. Pennybaker wanted to film the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and ABC Studios gave him $200,000 to do so. So he went out there with several camera operators, including some fellow groundbreaking documentary filmmakers in their own right, including Richard Leacock and Albert Mazels. And they shot on 16 millimeters 
the entirety of the festival, including some outstanding performances by the headliners, including Jimi Hendrix, who is the man who mimed getting it on with his amp just before, of course, he sets his guitar on fire, breaks the hell out of it, and throws the neck into the audience after Wild Thing. I recently saw Monterey Pop. I'd only seen clips of it, but I saw the whole thing over Turner Classic Movies, Great Labor Day Film Festival, which was all concerts, and it was just an outstanding lineup of great concert documentaries. I saw like The Kids Are Alright, The Who, they played the ABBA movie, there was Neil Young, there was Bob Dylan, all kinds of stuff. Jay-Z. It was just a great, great lineup. But I had never seen Monterey Pop. I remedied that have not stopped thinking about it since I watched it. And thankfully, it is on HBO Max, so you can check it out. It's also on the Criterion channel, though, where you can see not only Monterey Pop, but also a couple of short concerts, like the full set that Otis Redding played, which is Shake, Otis at Monterey, and one that Jimi Hendrix did as well. The film was shot on 16mm, blown up to 35 when it played at the theater, and it caused a sensation. It inspired more festivals to spring up all across America, and led directly to Woodstock, which was 1969's huge festival in upstate New York. Penny Baker recorded the audio for the documentary on an eight-channel reel-to-reel recorder that he borrowed from the Beach Boys. So this thing has stellar sound. The sound even improved over the years. Usually you always worry when they go back and tinker with movies, but in the late 70s with new groundbreaking technologies, they were able to go in and get rid of some static and some white noise on the track. So even though ABC passed on it to the point that, as Pennebaker has said, as soon as they showed the Jimi Hendrix clip to the head of ABC, who was a very conservative Southern gentleman at the time, they were like immediately kicked out of the office and told, keep the money. Like, we're not showing that filth on my network. But luckily for us, the film still exists. And features just amazing, amazing acts in their prime, including, of course, Jimi Hendrix doing Wild Thing. It opens with Scott McKenzie and the seminal song, San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Some Flowers in Your Hair. You've got Mamas and the Papas doing California Dreamin'. Simon and Garfunkel doing the 59th Street Bridge song, Feeling Groovy. Jefferson Airplane doing High Flying Bird and Today. And my two favorite scenes in the entire film. The first is The Big Brother and The Holding Company, which featured Janis Joplin doing Ball and Chain. She sings the shit out of this song, you guys, to the point that she is banging her shoe on the ground so hard I'm amazed she doesn't jump right out of her shoes as she goes off. And it's incredible to see Mama Cass from the Mamas and the Papas watching her. And just like her mouth hangs open, she's shaking her head. She's just in awe of the pipes on this chick, man. And it is Janice just at her absolute best. It's my favorite version that I've heard of Ball and Chain. I mean, Janice did this song various places. But this version, and you can find the clip on YouTube, and my god, is it worth watching, is just incredible. My second favorite scene is Otis Redding. I do recommend going and watching Shake, which is the short film that you can find on the Criterion channel, which is Otis at Monterey. It's his entire set. But in the movie, they show Shake, and then I've Been Loving You So Long... I Don't Want to Stop Now, which is my favorite Otis Redding song. When I was watching it and just like 
as soon as he gets into it, man, you feel the goosebumps everywhere on your body. And as I was watching it, I thought, you know, in the future, when computers are going to have to be fed, like, what is everything? If you said, like, what is sex? You could just show this performance by Otis Redding and the performance by Janis Joplin. And boom, there is your goddamn answer right there. It is just on fire. Of course, other acts are included that are also great in the movie. You're going to hear The Who doing My Generation. Pete Townsend in his prime is always fun to watch. The windmill guitar and just losing his marbles at the end of whatever performance they do. Or you're like, dude, rein it in. You're going to kill your entire band and maybe the first five rows of this auditorium. But it's still fun to watch. Let's just admit it. Eric Burden and the Animals. Unfortunately, the song that they put in the film is a cover of Paint It Black. And Paint It Black is one of my all-time favorite Rolling Stones songs. So I was not digging the Eric Burden cover of it, which was a double bummer because Eric Burden, man, is one of the great blue-eyed soul singers. And... It's like with the animals, there's so much stuff they could have chosen from there. So I'm a little, eh, I'm a little mixed on the Eric Burden portion of Monterey Pop, I will admit. As a fan, I'm like, no, seek out their good stuff because that's what it's all about. The film ends with just a killer performance by Ravi Shankar where he goes just all in. And I don't know how he had any fingers left at the end of that performance. It's incredible. It's a long... It starts out slow, I will say. And then as it just builds and builds and builds, you're like, how is this guy even standing? It's a great way to end the film, for sure. There's not a lot I can say about Monterey Pop that isn't just embodied by those performances because it's an artifact. It's a moment of time. It, you know, obviously doesn't have the plot and the character of other titles. So I'll just leave it there. If you're a fan of the band, if you like 60s music, if you like documentaries, or if you just really need to get out of your head and rock out for a couple hours because, I mean... Just turn on the news. Everything in 2020 is horrible. Go ahead and look for Monterey Pop on HBO Max or the Criterion channel. A big part of the appeal on HBO Max is the fact that it contains the Studio Ghibli collection. Now, here's the thing on pronunciation right there. The studio that's synonymous with Hayao Miyazaki derived its name from the Italian airplane and the Italian inventor, so the pronunciation should be Ghibli. However, in Japan, they pronounced it Ghibli. Now, when I saw John Lasseter give a speech back when the studio Ghibli films were released by Disney... I heard him say Ghibli, and I said Ghibli then for like years, so now I kind of feel like a jackass, but I did look up the pronunciation and went to my old Blu-rays and found this little behind-the-scenes thing and explanation by the Studio Ghibli folks, where they said, yeah, we took the name from Italy, but we pronounced it wrong, so... We made up our own word. In Japan, it's Ghibli. So, okay. I wanted to give a little note on the pronunciation before I dove in, because I'm always knowing that I'm just messing up names left and right, but there's a rhyme and a reason here, people. So, a big part of the HBO Max draw is the Studio Ghibli collection. And my favorite film, when you're looking at them, is Kiki's Delivery Service. Now keep in mind, there are a few I still need to watch. I've seen most of the movies, but there are maybe like four, three or four that I still need to watch. But my favorite is, and always has been, Kiki's Delivery Service from 1989. It was written, produced, and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. 
from the classic novel by Aiko Kadono tells the story of a young witch, Kiki, who moves to a new town and uses her flying ability to earn a living. Miyazaki, when he was asked about the film, said that it portrays the gulf between independence and reliance in Japanese teenage girls. As it opens, we discover that as is tradition for trainee witches, the 13-year-old Kiki must leave home. And she does with her black cat named Gigi, whom she can understand and converses with throughout the picture. She flies on her broomstick to a port city of Kariko, becomes friends with the optimistic and earnest Tombo, who, much like Miyazaki, is obsessed with aviation and admires her ability to fly. She gets room and board in exchange for helping a pregnant bakery owner and starts her witch's delivery business, or her Kiki's delivery service, delivering goods by broomstick. Along the way, she befriends an artist. She starts to struggle with flying and needs to learn to believe in herself. The film has a great positive message for young women. And additionally, it features just a bunch of great female mentors, which is sorely lacking, especially in coming-of-age movies. So many coming-of-age movies revolve around young boys because usually it's Hollywood worries about business and selling the story of a girl coming into her own to young boys who would be telling their parents what they want to see, and we can't go see a girl's movie, that kind of thing. Nonsense, said Miyazaki. His oeuvre is full of films about young women coming into their own, and I think Kiki's Delivery Service is his crowning achievement. The voice cast, when it was re-released by Disney, it was recorded with a very young Kirsten Dunst, the late great Phil Hartman, Janine Garofalo, Debbie Reynolds, and more. So it's full of fun, infectious voices that are sure to appeal to older fans who will remember Phil Hartman fondly and Debbie Reynolds. And it will also just delight kids. Now, this one I do caution you in showing very young children. I showed it to my nephew and niece back in the day, and I did kind of have to tell them as the movie begins and she's flying away from home and it's raining, and it's slightly scary at the beginning. Like, it's okay, she's a really good witch, she's a good flyer, you guys, she'll be fine. Like, I did have to reassure them. So I think it was a little unsettling for one of them. Intriguingly, I think it unsettled my nephew more, and he was older. I don't know if it's just because he understood what was going on in the film a little bit better, and he was closer to this age that Kiki was in real life, or if the girl just was so delighted by seeing a girl, like my, my niece, I mean, that she was just cool with it. But when she saw her brother getting a little worried, then she started to get worried. So kind of keep that in mind when you decide to show the film to your kids, like maturity level and interest and maybe reassure and watch, watch it with them, which I hope you do anyway, especially the first time you show them something that, you know, it's okay, it's a movie, it's just a story, you know, you know your kids best, obviously. But I do want to be sure to tell you guys that they loved the film, my niece and nephew, but it is one that, again, I'm glad I watched with them. And this entire collection is full of films that are thought-provoking and also can apply to everyday life, despite, of course, being very fantastical, which I think is a good part of his charm. Ponyo is interestingly about climate change, is the Little Mermaid story, but he sort of transposes it to 
deal with climate change and communities coming together. And other films in his filmography deal with very hard to grasp things that I think children wouldn't be able to handle if it was presented in a more documentarian or docudrama style, like My Neighbor Totoro, for sure, which deals with a mom being in the hospital as the father and children are getting their home ready. And that can be troubling as well, especially right now. I had been wanting to watch the movie again before COVID happened. And I put the Blu-ray by my player. I have this shelf of like dozens of movies like, oh yeah, I should watch this again. And I put it on this shelf and it's been there since before COVID hit. It's one that I do want to watch, but it's just going to be like a bit too heavy right now. So when I was looking over all of the Studio Ghibli films, I couldn't ignore my favorite first of all, which is Kiki's Delivery Service. But more than that, I thought this is one that you can still watch in this moment that isn't just going to just bring the house down a little too fast. And I mean, while children probably won't get that when they're watching Totoro, maybe, uh, it'll definitely hit mom and dad, let's just say. And Kiki's Delivery Service is just beautifully animated with an uplifting message, and it really moves as far as the pacing goes. There are no lags in Kiki's delivery service. It's slower than what you would imagine in American animation, where it seems like everybody's a wise ass, essentially, where everybody needs to be talking or singing or distracting you every two seconds. It's going to be a little slower than that. But the pacing as far as the story goes, which is a big character arc and a heroic arc, is just so compelling and makes this movie just as appealing whether you're 13 or 30 or 60. So look for the Studio Ghibli collection on HBO Max and check out Kiki's Delivery Service, especially if you haven't seen it before or if you just need another look. So I want to thank you so much for listening. And again, apologize for the delay between Watch With Jen, my solo pods here, the episodes of those. I hope you enjoyed this one. It was pretty talky, but it's been a while, so I thought I would make it a little bit longer than usual. To recap, the films I recommended this week for you are all available on HBO Max. Additionally, you should be able to rent these through any variety of digital retailers. First, we started with City of God from 2002, Fernando Morelli's and Katia Lund. We followed that up with My Blue Heaven from 1990, director Herbert Ross. Then we went with Rio Bravo from 1959, director good old Howard Hawks, and took a trip to Monterey Pop in 1967. The film actually came out in 68, but you get to relive the 67 festival. Monterey Pop is not only available on HBO Max, you can also find it on the Criterion channel. And we decided to leave you with a smile, with a sweet one, Kiki's Delivery Service from 1989. So I hope you have a great week. I hope you and your family are staying safe. And I will talk to you soon. Take care, everyone. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen.